You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to episode 44 of the Crisis in the Church series. Last week, we looked at the status of the Society of St. Pius X. Given that there is no regular canonical status for the SSPX, how then can the priests of the Society exercise their functions? Canon law is pretty clear on this point. For a priest to exercise his ministry, he must be under the authority and the direction of the local bishop, or at least under the direct supervision of the Vatican. Since neither exists, how can the priests of the society justify, in all good conscience, what they do? Are they simply disobedient rebels? Father Jonathan Loop will join us, and we will look at this question in two ways, first by looking at the general principles, and second by looking at canon law itself. Let's join Father Loop right now on the SSPX Podcast. Welcome to the SSPX Podcast and our next episode on the Crisis in the Church series. And happy to welcome back Father Jonathan Loop. Hello, Father. How is school year 2021-2022 going so far? Thank you very much, Andrew. Um, thank you for asking as well. Things on the whole have seemed to have started pretty smoothly up here. Um, on the whole, fairly normal. So, yeah, okay. great. Normal is good. Yeah, it's very uh, much so. Especially, especially the last couple of years. That's entirely true. Yeah. Well, Father, wanted to have you on to continue on with this uh, section we're doing in the Crisis Series on the Society of St. Pius X itself. Um, today we're asking the broad, broad question on how can the SSPX justify its apostolate. Now, last week we were visiting with Father Robinson um, on the status of the SSPX. What is the status? You know, it's it's... You know, it's a muddy question, so we we dove into that. Today, we're looking at how do we justify what we're doing? Um, because, in a sense, you're not in a canonical position within the church. It's not a normal, air quotes, normal uh, mm-hmm. situation. Um, Correct. So, Father, wh- where do we start with asking and answering this broad question of how does the Society of St. Pius X justify what it does? You know, that's a very good question. And as I'm sure we've seen a great deal uh, last week, uh, there's a lot that has to be considered when answering, firstly, the question of what our status is, um, which is certainly not normal. And right. as a result of that, it leads to a lot of questions. Well, in that case, how can we justify what we do? Um, and maybe just remind our listeners, um, we can uh, quote, for example, uh, as far as the question of our status is concerned, someone like Cardinal Mueller, when he issued the document by which Pope Francis um, was willing to grant delegation for our priests to be the witnesses of marriages, he wrote that um, following the same pastoral outlook, which seeks to reassure the conscience of the faithful, despite the objective persistence of the canonical irregularity in which, for the time being, the Society of St. Pius X finds itself. The Holy Father, then he goes on to uh, encourage bishops to grant that delegation. So it's, we're certainly in a canonically irregular status, which, of course, means that we're in the Church, that we're right. dealing with members of the Roman Catholic Church, but one without um, a normal canonical mission. And again, Pope Benedict um, in his document, uh, lifting the excommunications, 
stated that as long as the society does not have this normal canonical status in the church, these ministers do not exercise legitimate ministries in the church. There needs to be a distinction then between the disciplinary level, which deals with individuals as such, and the doctrinal level at which ministry and institution are involved. In order to make this clear once again, until the doctrinal questions are clarified, the society has no canonical status in the church. And its ministers, even though they have been freed of any ecclesiastical penalty, do not legitimately exercise any ministry in the church. Seems fairly clear. And it seems, of course, to indicate that what we do is not blessed by the church. And certainly, um, up until the time when Pope Francis granted an explicit delegation for our priests to hear confessions, would seem to imply for those sacraments that required some jurisdiction, some form of canonical ministry in the church, that those sacraments would have been invalid. And of course, it could trouble a lot of people there. Right. And even now, even with those uh, movements of Pope Francis, still a lot of bishops certainly make very clear their explicit opposition to the apostolate that society priests exercise in their diocese or what have you. you know, for example, I was just uh, corresponding with the diocesan priest here in the Diocese of Boise, who was you know, commenting that you know, certainly you as a society priest, the society in a general way, is working in this Diocese of Boise, um, contrary to the intentions, contrary to the will of the local ordinary Bishop Peter Christensen. You know, and it's, it's very clear. And, um, even with the question of, let's say, marriage, you know, when we approached him, he said, no, why don't you just go to the fraternity? It seemed to make more sense. Um, so it does seem that, okay, you have this local opposition on the part of a number of diocesan bishops. How can we work then going against the known intentions, known will of those successors of the apostles, those princes of the church, and still be truly exercising a praiseworthy work before God and doing good to souls. Right. And and I I thought about asking you this at at the beginning and and thought about maybe asking you this at, at the end of our conversation, Father, does, and this is a little bit off script, uh, actually, it's very much off script. Um, <laughs> does that weigh on you, Father? Does, does that weigh? I mean, is that a is that a burden or is that a concern to you? And and I know this entire episode is going to be talking about you know justifying mm-hmm. the ministry. Uh, yeah, for but sure. Th- that has to be you know, like you said, he, the bishop is a successor of the apostles. I mean, you you uh, at least if I were in your shoes, it would feel a little ooh heavy. Mm-hmm. But oh, certainly, in fact, I well. As an initial answer to that question, um, one of the weekends when I was down in our chapel in Boise, I gave a, a sermon explicitly addressing some of the, the statements of the bishop, partly because of a number of our faithful who I think have been a little bit troubled, or perhaps to be more accurate to say, um, reasonable trouble, especially those who have become started coming to us more recently. Mm-hmm. And more specifically for, it's going to depend on each priest for sure, um, but the way I'd answer that, your question is yes and no. Um, the no part would simply be, as we'll see, I'm deeply convinced that we're well operating within um, principles that the church has laid out. 
and which mean that while on you know, the level of the positive ecclesiastical law, um, we're certainly irregular. We don't have that regular canonical status, that regular legal status. Nevertheless, um, we're very well within the mind and intentions of the law. The way I would say yes, it does what I mean is simply, and this is something I intended to kind of end with today, um, and we'll come back to that as a result, is that it's it's not so much for myself personally, but for the church. You know, we're dealing with a situation where those who truly have are the successors of the apostles, truly have received that same authority, are in fact working against the goals of the apostles and preventing that free access to the true form um, of worship due to the spouse of Holy Mother of the Church. Um, and as a result, it damages a lot of souls and I think really prevents a great deal of grace to be uh, received uh, through the through the normal ordinary channels. Um, but we can come back to that again at the end, Sure, I think. Yeah, sorry for jumping in. I just, it, it struck me when you said, you know, mm-hmm. when you're talking about the Bishop of Boise and it's, you know, he is the legitimate successor of the apostles, it must be yeah. at times. But anyway, sorry, I go ahead. Yeah, well, maybe just to finish, sorry, maybe just to finish that answer, it'd be like, you know, uh, a son who has a father who in one way or another is harming the family. You know, and the son views himself, sees clearly that he needs to protect other members of the family. And he's not going to regret that part of the situation, but he will regret the the fact that the one that he does look up to as his father is not acting as a father. Right. And it kind of comes down to that. Makes sense. All right. So as we come back then to this question more generally, all right, how do we then justify this? How do we justify, let's say, for example, here in Post Falls, we have a, to speak very, very loosely, you know, a parish of about 1,600 people, roughly. Um, we have a school, a boys' school, of about 180 kids. There are the Dominicans run a girls' school, uh, about 200 day students in borders. And all of that, of course, without the blessing, without the acknowledgement and approval of the local ordinary. It's, it's a fairly big thing. So how do we, how can we justify our presence here in acting, continuing to act in, in the face of that knowledge? And I think we have to try to answer this on two distinct levels. In the first place, by really striving to, to go to first principles in a sense. And then secondly, looking at it from a more uh, detailed perspective at certain aspects of canon law, which are linked to those first principles, but which are more specific and can help guide us in our day-to-day approach to how we handle the situation. And just to begin, as we turn to these, this question, these first principles, I'm very, very welcome to admit that this is an exceedingly exceptional circumstance and situation. It is profoundly not normal that we be carrying on an apostolate that you know, is not approved by the local bishop 
and even in Satan goes even goes against his mind, we may say. So yeah, that's not normal, <laughs> and it's not awesome. Um, and again, like I said a moment ago, especially for the sake of the church as a whole. Now, the reason, of course, that we act in such an exceptional manner is as a response to the exceptional crisis in which the church currently finds herself. Um, we cannot, I think, in approaching this question, underestimate the profound gravity of the situation which the church and therefore which we find ourselves. And here, um, it might be helpful, I'm going to quote a small passage from Archbishop Lefebvre when he was responding in 1986 to the question of whether or not he would proceed to the consecration of bishops. So at this point, it was more a theoretical possibility. He hadn't made up his mind yet. And so he says here, quote, if this were simply about a quote-unquote disciplinary difficulty, I would have no hesitation. So, for example, if Pius Twelfth were alive today, and asked me to close the seminary in a cone, my obedience would be immediate and unproblematic. So just to stop there, obviously he means with Pius XII, he worked closely with him, and if he would trust that act of authority, and Pius XII himself intervened and said, no, this is not the work of the church, I'd like you to stop. But then, to return to Archbishop Lefebvre, he goes on. He says, but today the faith is at stake. I sense that the, quote, conciliar church is changing and endangering the heart of the Catholic faith. For this reason, obedience is no longer possible. Even the Pope has no power to change the faith. He is only its servant. To accept religious liberty, ecumenism, and the conciliar reforms, would mean for me to contribute to the work of the Church's self-destruction. In conscience, I cannot do that. But I want to make one thing clear. The bishops that I will consecrate, if I consecrate any, will have no special authority in the society. And that's the end of his quote here. What he meant by that, that last statement, is that they wouldn't have a particular jurisdiction um, right. or a ordinary jurisdiction over the members of the society. And indeed, uh, to illustrate that, um, he stated in several conferences that it was not necessary and perhaps even better that a bishop uh, not be um, the superior general for that reason, to avoid giving the impression that he had an ordinary jurisdiction. Right. Um, and in that light, it was the same as his previous order, the Holy Ghost without fathers. You know, he was the superior general for a time as an archbishop, but as he pointed out, there have been a number of priests who had occupied that same role. Um, so again, the so, main point. So, for instance, Bishop Bishop Fillet. Sorry to interrupt you, Father, but Bishop Fillet, as a as a priest, as a bishop, as an auxiliary bishop of the Society of Saint Pius the Tenth, if Father Pagliarani, who is the superior general of the society, tells him to do something or wants him to go to a specific place, Bishop Fillet should do it in a mm -hmm. in a hypothetical situation, Correct. even though. Bishop Flay is a bishop. It doesn't matter. Correct. Exactly. You know, and it's obviously that's dealing more with the internal structure of our congregation. Um, but again, yes, it's the same point. 
And okay. to really come back to the heart of that quote, what he's stating is that the, it's we're dealing with a situation where the faith is being profoundly undermined. And for that reason, what would otherwise be a normal legitimate order, say if Pope Pius XII were to give it, suddenly becomes um, unacceptable. We cannot in conscience, well, it's very interesting that he says, I cannot in conscience contribute to the destruction of the right. church or the self-destruction of the church. And so for us, I would say, if we can say that if a person remains blind, to what effectively is an objective reality about the state of the church in our day and age, then really there's absolutely no argument that the society can present to defend itself and the conduct it, you know, um, it practices. You know, because, again, what matters is this assessment that we're in a situation where there's um, a grave danger of souls losing the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ in his church um, as what as he founded it. Um, and if somebody does not admit that, then certainly all that we do is nonsense. And that, that mm-hmm. makes perfect sense. And you might compare it, you know, you might say if a man is willfully blind to the fact that his house is on fire, like he will simply not admit that fact, then you know, it's going to be a waste of time to sit there and say, okay, well look, your house is on fire. You're in grave mortal danger. I'm going to trespass on your premises in order to save you. He's like, no, no, it's not. It's, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm fine. You know, get out of here. You know, and that, right. that's, that smoke is just my toast, you know, or whatever. I don't know, <laughs> you know. Um, so it has to do with the acknowledgement of the, the character, the crisis. And, um, you know, to take an example, they're more specific to the situation in the church. If one believes that the Novus Ordo Mass is fundamentally acceptable, uh, that there's no grave doctrinal problems with its uh, um, with its um, with the authors that wrote it, with how it's presented, etc. And that the only possible problems you may have with it are certain isolated abuses here and there that we just have to clean up on occasion. Then certainly you know, it wouldn't make any sense for the society to sit there and say, you can never go to the Novus Ordo Mass. It's bad, or it's, it's something that's intrinsically harmful for your faith. And as a result, we have an unrestricted right, right to say only the traditional Mass, period. And it's right. unacceptable for us to have as a condition of any kind of regularization of our canonical status the uh, statement that it is well, you know, something illicit, fruitful, or anything along those lines. You know, you know, this is the exact position of the what we could now say formally known as the Ecclesia Dei Commission uh, congregation, such as the fraternity, who explicitly take that line. You know, as an illustration of that, you had a, a passage from the French district superior of the fraternity, when he basically said, "We don't understand why we're being singled out, and it's being said that we're undermining." Um, you know, for mass, we've always acknowledged it as licit and fruitful, you know. And at that point, of course, they put themselves in a situation where they effectively don't admit that there's a profound crisis in the faith, and they have to, at that point, um, um, you know, submit themselves to the local authorities who may, especially now, after the Pope's new proprio, 
at some point saying, look, I need you for the good of souls, for you know, the, my parishioners, are my diocesan um, faithful, to say they will sort of mass on occasion. And they, they, you know, given their principles, you know, there's no objective uh, reason why they could say they should know. You know right. Objective reason. Um, it was interesting, you know, Pope, or not Pope, um, Archbishop Lefebvre commented in 1987 when, in 1988 when he was going through the negotiations with Rome uh, one of the signs that he took us from Providence that it was not going to be wise to um, to persevere with the protocol that he signed were some of the comments of the then Cardinal Ratzinger who um, observed that in a parish like uh, Saint-Nicolas de Chardonnay in Paris that of course it would be necessary once everything were kind of settled with the protocol and everything had been regularized that there be no sort of masses offered there, you know, for the poor parishioners right in the area who wanted to the access to the Nova sort of mass. And the Archbishop is one of those things that made it abundantly clear to the Archbishop, okay, their intentions are not the same as ours. You know, we want to be acknowledged as injustice we should be, not uh, because of our persons, but because of the world that we represent at this point, whereas for Cardinal Rassinger and the other Roman authorities, it was all about, we're going to lead you back to accepting Vatican II and accepting in principle the Novus Ordo Mass, which of course in time would lead to um, that being the only Mass that they'd be right. allowed to say. Um, and along these lines, you know, having mentioned those um, Ecclesia Dei communities, I'd maybe like to cite Archbishop Lefebvre again um, this time from a spiritual conference he gave at a Cone in 1986. Um, so it's not the same uh, interview that the previous quote came from. This is a spiritual conference that was given in May. And it was the context of it was um, another group of seminarians. And actually, I think it was just seminarians on this occasion had abruptly left a Cone in order to go to Rome because they've been promised to be able to have a seminary in Rome or they'd be able to learn the Latin Mass and stuff like that. And in the course of the first conference, the Archbishop said, like, this is the fourth time that this has happened, you know, where people have left us, and it's always gone badly for them. And so he says, there is a whole milieu of Catholics who want to be traditional. You see, the things are not going well in the church but who do not have the courage to oppose themselves to the authority which is destroying the church, which is the cause, which is at the origin of the subversion of the church. What can I do? It is what it is. The subversion of the church has come from Rome. Paul VI said this himself when he spoke of the auto-demolition of the church. But he was also an agent of that destruction when he accepted the reforms of Vatican II. He saw through this council, which has principles contrary to the doctrine of the church. Now, it is necessary to make a choice. One must grasp precisely what is the crisis in the church. Such people, these people in these traditional views, do not understand what is the crisis in the church. They believe it is something benign, a small thing. But this is not true. It is the faith which is at stake. It is a complete inversion of principles. They no longer have Catholic values. It is no longer Christian. It is instead Masonic. It is truly a revolution in the interior of the church. 
The devil has delivered his masterstroke to make use of the church to destroy the church, to make use of the authorities of the church to destroy the church. And that's the end of the quotation. That was obviously a little bit repetitive, but it's just speaking in a spiritual conference. And what he says there, I think, is very profound. It's a matter of not going to the depth of the causes that we're dealing with here, in which profoundly impact our practical decisions and how to approach the solution there. If we're really dealing with, let's say, authorities within the church who are, you know, and to speak very loosely, being used by the devil to destroy the church, that has to alter how we approach them. And that has nothing to do with their motives, their intentions as human beings, but simply, objectively speaking, these principles which they are basing their action upon are contrary to the doctrine of the church. And indeed, the whole point of the series of podcasts has been to explore in some detail those principles that the Archbishop mentions in that that short passage, you know, coming from Vatican II, or well, let's say brought into the church in an official capacity of Vatican II, as we saw in those uh, podcasts, and you know, which we can you know, mention religious liberty, ecumenism, you know, the sort of mass, collegiality, um, a whole host of things that are tightly linked with each other. And all, all the point of being able to explore those in detail is to help us to see and to understand that this trial the church is undergoing is unprecedented. Um, and we're not dealing ultimately with just, let's say, this isolated heresy, this isolated problem with its part of the church or anything along those lines, but rather a radical shaking of the foundations of our faith. In... Maybe, again, before we just approach the the legal aspect of this, it might be good to summarize a little bit all that we've seen about these different uh, errors in the church, these different principles that are undermining the church, um, by quoting from a passage of Paul VI in a speech that he gave at the very end of the council on the 7th of December, 1965. Um, It's a speech of closure, so all the work has been done, He's addressing all the bishops, commenting on what's been brought to a conclusion after four years. And it's really an astonishing speech, like deeply astonishing. I was rereading it again and just amazed, in fact, by what he says. And it's true that there are certain phrases, certain portions of it, which have an element of tradition about them, or certainly not controversial in themselves. But those are, in a way... Um, accidental, I would say, to the heart of this speech, where the Pope's real interest lies. So I'll just quote one or two passages from it, um, a little bit longer, but I think they'll be helpful to see, because they'll bring out this inversion of principles that Archbishop Lefebvre talked about. So at that time, the Pope, Pope Paul VI, says, yes, the Church of the Council has been concerned, not just with herself and with her relationship of union with God, but with man, man as he really is today, a living man, man all wrapped up in himself, man who makes himself not only the center of his every interests, 
but dares to claim that he is the principle and explanation of all reality. It's a broad claim, and it brings to mind, I think rather quickly, um, what St. Pius X wrote in his first encyclical, where he explains, I'm just going over this with my civics class, um, where he explains, look, I was terrified to take on the papacy. Didn't want it at all. And a large part of the reason is I could see that whoever would be the next pope had to deal with the grave and awful situation of society, which could be summarized as nothing other than apostasy from God. And a little bit later in that same encyclical, he says, look, you know, it's, it seems like we're, if not in the time of the Antichrist, certainly in the time of the forerunners of the Antichrist, because what we see man doing is, you know, different levels of politics, etc., putting himself in the place of God, which is precisely what is described as the Antichrist by St. Paul. You know, who will raise himself above all things that are called God. And as he writes in the, I think it's the first letter to the Thessalonians, or maybe it's the second, just one of those two. Um, but here's how, um, let's say, Paul VI responds to that. So he's, he's basically saying something very similar as St. Pius X as far as diagnosing the, the situation of modern man. This is where modern man is. Now, Pius, or Paul VI says, but one must realize that this council, which exposed itself to human judgment, insisted very much more upon this pleasant side of man, rather than on the unpleasant one. So man is, as he is today, all wrapped up in himself and makes himself God. But we want to focus on the positive. That's good. His attitude was very much and deliberately optimistic. A wave of affection and admiration flowed from the council over the modern world of humanity. Instead of depressing diagnoses, encouraging remedies. Instead of direful prognostics, messages of trust issued from the council to the present day world. And here is a very profound statement. The modern world's values were not only respected, but honored. Its efforts approved, its aspirations purified and blessed. Our humanism becomes Christianity. Our Christianity then becomes centered on God. In such sort that we may say, to put it differently, a knowledge of man is prerequisite for a knowledge of God. So man makes himself the principle of all reality, and that's this man, this modern world of humanity, that the Church at Second Vatican Council looks on with admiration. And in that light, it might be interesting to quote a passage of Cardinal Ratzinger, written in the 1980s, um, where he says that the texts of the Vatican Second documents, especially as Gaudium Espes, serves as a counter-syllabus, and as such represents, on the part of the Church, an attempt at an official reconciliation with the new era inaugurated in 1789, in other words, the French Revolution, in that time where the church was basically decreed illegal and they sought to wipe it from the face of the earth. That's, in a way, the spirit of Vatican II. And so for the final passage here from Paul VI, and again, I think which really and truly illustrates the, the heart 
of everything that has occurred in the church since Vatican II, deeper than the individual questions about, let's say, the Novus Ordo Mass, or even religious liberty and accusationism, because those are all fruits of this mindset. Secular humanism, revealing itself in its horrible anti-clerical reality, has in a certain sense defied the council. The religion of the God who became man has met the religion, for such it is, of man who makes himself God. And what happened? Was there a clash, a battle, a condemnation? There could have been, but there was nothing. The old story to the Samaritan has been the model of the spirituality of the council. A feeling of boundless sympathy has permeated the whole of it. The attention of our council has been absorbed by the discovery of human needs. But we call upon those who term themselves modern humanists and who have renounced the transcendent value of the highest realities to give the council credit at least for one quality and to recognize our own new type of humanism. We too, in fact, we more than any others, honor mankind. Again, it's a profound inversion, inversion of values, to, to use that phrase from uh, Archbishop Lefebvre. And because of that, and here we'll start to really look at what this means for us on a day-to-day -day basis in our uh, apostolate. It means that the normal laws and customs of the church, which are healthy in times of peace, and in times we might say of normalcy, cannot always be applied according to the letter of the positive ecclesiastical law. Indeed, to do so can easily produce the exact opposite result to the one intended by the legislature. You know, for example, again, to use that illustration of the burning house, trespassing right. is a great law, or no trespassing. Right. You know, that's a great law. <laughs> Um, but obviously to apply it to the letter when somebody's house is burning down, it's like, well, you know, I need to get his permission before I rush into his house to save him. But I, I can see through the window that he's lying face down, you know, smothering in smoke and stuff like that. But I'll still wait because I don't want to, you know, trespass or right. anything like that. It'd be absurd. You know, obviously somebody can see it when he's applied on that level. Um, these laws, what, the, what the purpose of the law is, the purpose of the law is the, is the welfare of everyone. And yeah. so then you act according to that higher principle, not this smaller principle. Exactly. And when we look at, let's say, the ecclesiastical laws, we can say that their higher principle, um, let's say, is designed above all, or what they're designed to do, is promote the salvation of souls. In fact, in the new code that's explicitly mentioned in the very last canon, you know, it's um, speaking about um, transfers of priests and what have you, but it mentions that in part, in, in light of that, it should always be kept in mind the salvation of souls, which is the supreme law of the church. So all things are, let's say, directed towards that goal and are meant to serve it, obviously. And because it's meant to promote the salvation of souls, that means that every law in the church is meant to safeguard the faith. Because as St. Paul says in his letter to the Hebrews, without the faith, it is impossible to please God. So in order to work for the salvation of souls, you have, the church must propagate the faith, defend the faith, and create structures that allow the faith to be effectively 
practiced. Okay, and as I think it's clear from that, these laws presuppose that the authorities in the church are working as well themselves to protect and promote the faith of all ages. You know, that's the that's the we may say implicit found, uh, presupposition of every law in the church you know, that deals with those um, who exercise authority. And perhaps it might be helpful as an aside when we speak of the legislature when speaking of church laws, we have to understand that firstly and um, radically we're referring to our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, we may say his spirit, the Holy Ghost, and not this or that pope or bishop as an individual man. They certainly have the right to make laws for the church, uh, bishop for his diocese, pope for the universal church. But it's as a vicar of our Lord Jesus Christ. They don't have any right to make laws according to their own whims and for their own purposes. And as a result, anything that would go against any of their prescriptions, any of their regulations, um, which would go against the higher divine law, would cease to exist. It would be going against the mind of the legislature. And we can even speak, so to speak, that it goes against their own intentions according to their office. Because according to their office, their intentions are to further the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's a, there's a great... Uh, uh, I remember when I was first, when I first converted, I remember uh, having one or two conversations with people who had a little bit of uh, trouble understanding how we could ever pray for the intentions of someone like Pope John Paul II, who was Pope when I was first converted. Like, I don't want to pray for, you know, his, you know, for interreligious prayer meetings. I don't want to have, want that to be successful. I mean, like, I wanted to be converted. And, uh, well, I didn't have the answer. Somebody else mentions, okay, no, 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 no. You have to understand when we, when we speak of the intentions of the Father, it's not have him as an individual, but rather according to his office. You know, that he, as Pope, wishes that the, you know, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ spread and the souls be saved as a result. Now, okay. To better understand this, I think it'd be helpful to turn to St. Thomas Aquinas briefly and to look at a virtue which he discusses called epikeia. It's a, a part of the virtue of justice. And he talks about this in the Summa, in the second part of the second part, uh, question 120. And what he does there, of course, is to explain, okay, how does uh, this virtue uh, relate to justice. So this is a basic point. And fundamentally, what this virtue of epikeia is, um, is that virtue by which one uh, makes a judgment that in order to safeguard the intention of the lawgiver, one uh, does not obey the letter of the law, to put it most simply. Um, and there's a few parts of this. So it's an article that bears reading. We can't do all of it, of course. Uh, the whole question bears reading. Um, but he, he presents some objections that, in fact, are very similar to ones that are presented against the society. Um, you know, so, for example, it's a common thing stated, okay, well, based on how you're acting, you judge, you put yourself above um, the bishops and the popes, you know, effectively. Mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of, in fact, Pope Paul VI, when he met with Archbishop Lefebvre, 
effectively presented a variation of that argument when he says, do you want to be the Pope? You know, it's a very painful experience, obviously for the Pope, because he was uh, uh, grieved about the whole situation, even if he uh, was causing it ultimately, and for the Archbishop as well. Now, so St. Thomas gives an objection, okay, with regard to earthly laws, although men pass judgment on them when they make them, yet whence... When once these laws are made and established, the judge must pronounce judgment not on them, but according to them. But seemingly this epicaea judges the law when it deems that the law should not be observed in some particular case and is therefore a vice. So we're let's say, saying this law does not apply. For example, the normal law that a priest has to have a delegation to hear confessions. It's a normal law in the church. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're passing judgment on that law, saying that the law is uh, not applicable. And then the third objection is, and this is one of particularly that's often given, you know, for example, let's say with the consecrations. Um, well, I'll read the objection that St. Thomas gives and then apply it to how it is seen in those uh, consecrations. He says, it belongs to this epicaea to consider the intention of the lawgiver as the philosopher states, holding Aristotle. But it belongs to the sovereign alone to interpret the intention of the lawgiver. Wherefore, the emperor says in the Codex of Laws and Constitutions that it is fitting and lawful that we alone should interpret between equity and law. Therefore, the act of epicaea is unlawful, and consequently, epicaea is not a virtue. Now, that applies here, of course, because, let's say, Archbishop Lefebvre said, I'm proceeding to these consecrations because there is a crisis in the church. And John Paul II, the Holy Father at the time, said, no, there's not. You know, you're mistaken because you have a misunderstanding of living tradition. There's no crisis. And so some people say, well, it's for the Pope to be able to make that judgment, right? You know, he's the one who has the head. He's the one who interprets the intention of the lawgiver, which here, of course, in, if we bring it down to particular law, I question that a bishop does not consecrate without the approval of the Holy Father, without the approval of Rome. So he's the one to judge that this doesn't apply now, and therefore the Archbishop was wrong to go against it. Can be no epicanon. Now, okay, he gives the response, and... He says this, legislators in framing laws attend to what commonly happens, and what happens for the most part. Although if a law be applied to certain cases, if it will frustrate the equality of justice and be injurious to the common good which the law has in view. Because as he explains a little earlier, the laws dealing with human actions which involves a lot of particular circumstances, all of which cannot be foreseen. Okay, in other words, go back again to the, the law of uh, uh, the house burning. The law says don't trespass. But I can't foresee that my house is going up in flames right now and I'm fine with somebody breaking in to save me. Okay, so the law doesn't foresee that, therefore it doesn't provide for it. Okay, so then he gives an example. He says, thus the law requires deposits to be restored, because in the majority of cases this is just. You know, if I give you money, you know, I deposit money with you. Um, if we're going to have, I'm going to use some of your equipment. Um, uh, you know, normally you'd return it to me if I gave you back your equipment. 
Okay. And that's what he goes on. It happens sometimes to be injurious to give back the deposit. For instance, if a madman were to put his sword in deposit and then demand its delivery while in a state of madness, or if a man to receive the return of his deposit in order to fight against his country. You know, so let's say I um, give you back your camera equipment, but I've gone mad in the meantime, and you give uh, I'm intending to use the money to fund, I don't know, um, I don't know, some terrible thing. You know, you're like, no, I can't, I can't allow you to do that. It makes sense, even though normal would be unjust. And then he concludes, on these and like cases, it is bad to follow the law, and it is good to set aside the letter of the law, and to follow the dictates of justice and the common good. This is the object of Epicaea, which we call equity. Therefore, it is evident that Epicaea is a virtue. Okay. So, there are times when the law, as it is written, goes against the purpose for which it was written. You know, for example, the virtue of obedience, you know, we could also apply that to obedience. The virtue of obedience is a, it's a good thing. But there are times when to practice obedience according to the letter of, let's say, the virtue would actually be harmful, in a sense, um, you know, being at all times. Um, if you're, let's say, your father uh, commanded you to, to commit some kind of sin, right? You're materially going to disobey, but in fact to obey then would be vicious. So then he concludes with responses on these objections. And he comments that with respect to, in, in fact, I'll just read this quotation here. This is from the reply to the objection one. To follow the letter of the law when it ought not to be followed is sinful. And it goes back to Archbishop of saying, I cannot in conscience contribute to the destruction of the church. No. He's saying it's a matter of conscience. Not St. Thomas Aquinas agrees, but at least with a general principle. And then he says, hence it is written in this code of laws, without doubt he transgresses the law, who by adhering to the letter of the law strives to defeat the intention of the lawgiver. So if we obey, and in obeying deprive souls of, let's say, the faith and its integrity, we're displeasing God, manifestly so. You get, you get an example of that, we may say, and this is loosely speaking, uh, with St. Paul and St. Peter, when St. Peter comes to Antioch and is eating uh, apart from the Gentile Christians, only with the Jewish Christians, and kind of avoiding their company because of the pressure of the Jewish Christians. And St. Paul stands him in the face and tells him to his face, you're doing wrong, you need to fix this. Now, St. Peter, just right then and there, acknowledges that he's in the wrong and uh, corrects his behavior. But let's say he had made a rule saying that, okay, now all Jewish Christians have to behave in this way. It wouldn't suddenly, suddenly become fine because he right. had said, okay, now everybody has to do it. And St. Paul would not at that point have said, oh, okay, well, okay, so when you were doing it just basically on your own, that, that was awful. But now that you've said everyone must do it, okay, fine, whatever. But they still said the same thing, that this is contrary to the principles of what our gospel is. And so, yeah. And then with respect to the second objection, which is where we're, let's say, accused of passing judgment on the laws, we, he says this. We would be passing judgment on a law to say that it was not well made. Okay. And there can be instances of that for sure. 
But to say that the letter of the law is not to be observed in some particular case is passing judgment not on the law, but on some particular contingency. So in other words, going back to the archbishop, it's not to say that the law requiring that bishops have approval from Rome to consecrate a new bishop is bad. It's not a a judgment on the law, but it is a judgment that in this particular circumstance, there are are considerations which mean that um, to follow that law would be going against the ultimate purpose of it. And, so finally, he, yeah, and he's not saying this law is bad in and of no, itself. No, no. In fact, he was saying the, the exact opposite. And, and I guess we could even go so, so far as to say in the future, should the society need to consecrate more bishops in the future, Father Pagliarani or whoever the superior general is at the time, years down, I'm, I'm not breaking any news here. We're just yeah, talking sure. hypotheticals here. Um, he would strive to get the approval of Rome for that because it yeah. is still a law that you should try to follow. Yeah, it's completely normal. Um, and, you know, God willing, I mean, the best case scenario there, of course, would be that the Holy Father, and whenever that happens, and whoever the Holy Father happens to be at that time, um, would be willing to say, yes, you know, this is the, the, the right that you do is of the church, for the church. And as a result, there is a pressing need. Um, and as a result, I give my blessing for this. You know, um, that'd be a best case scenario because obviously you see what providence brings. But and then the final uh, objection, and this one I think is the most interesting in some respects because um, this is the one where you know, a lot of people are most uncomfortable because as if you remember the objection, he goes, "Okay, look, it's for the lawgiver to interpret the law alone. You know, and if he says everything's fine, then you can't use Epicaea." Now, St. Thomas says that interpretation is admissible in doubtful cases where it is not allowed to set aside the letter of the law without the interpretation of the sovereign. But when the case is manifest, there is need not of interpretation, but of execution. Meaning that if if there is clear clarity about an urgent need, then it's not a matter of interpreting um, a situation, and and here again it comes and well, really what we're talking about here is just the awareness of the reality of the crisis in the church. You know, and for somebody who's not willing to admit that, then this well, uh, Saint Thomas says here would not apply. He would not apply it, say to the society's uh, perspectives. For somebody who can objectively look at what is going on in the church and be able to trace it back to its origins, can see, okay, look, there's not a matter of interpreting. It doesn't, in a sense, you know, go back to um, you know, the question of consecrations again. For John Paul II to say there's no crisis when he previously, and not too long before, had called together the representatives of all the religions throughout the world to pray for peace to their respective gods, something which had never, ever happened in the church before, and which was, as Archbishop Swift had put it, the single greatest humiliation of the church up until that time, then you know, there's just no objective question. Now we're dealing with a fundamental you know, chaos and inversion of all that the church um, had been up until that time, and by consequence is... Um, 
that there's it's in a state of crisis. You, know, you cannot have that kind of prayer meeting and not realize that the faith in the one true God, who alone is the living God, and that our Lord Jesus Christ is the single and sole mediator, and nobody can go to God except through him, is being not only questioned, but objectively denied. You know, if, if these other people can effectively pray to God outside of our Lord Jesus Christ, then he is not the mediator to all men. It's just, it's, and it's, it's a simple clarity that is, you know, a certain honesty that goes with that. All right, so again, what we've seen thus far is, okay, look, there's this general crisis in the church. I mean, obviously, we didn't go into it in detail, but um, that is at the foundation of all that we do on a practical level. I mean, this is why we've done these series of podcasts. And then as a broad principle, we spoke about that um, virtue of epicaea, which is to the act of setting aside a particular or a positive law when it goes against the very purpose for which it was intended. And we saw that the principal lawgiver in the church is our Lord. And that all bishops and all popes only act as his representatives and only have authority to the extent that they're being faithful to that trust. Now, that being said, it might be good to descend a little bit more into um, the question of the canon law, because it's true, this is a delicate situation. And it's fairly easy to respond that the appeal to exceptional circumstances can be abused. You, know, you can do whatever you want, effectively. Um, and that is indeed a danger. I mean, there's no denying that. It's partly, it's a necessary consequence of the um, turmoil in which the church finds herself in. Um, you know, so it's like when you're uh, let's say, facing a situation where you have to defend your life. Um, it's very easy in those moments where your life hinges on how you act to perhaps if, um, uh, fall into one or two excesses, you know, perhaps using more violence than would be needed in the situation and you're killing somebody sure. unnecessarily. You know, it's, it's a delicate thing. There's no uh, way about that. Uh, but at the same time, we can say on the one hand that the Archbishop bequeathed to the society to desire as much as possible to always keep working within the, the, both the spirit and the, really, the, even the letter of canon law as circumstances permitted. Um, partly because these canons are holy. And they do serve a very good purpose, and they've been the food to the church's uh, uh, secular experience, by which I mean um, many hundreds of years' experience on how to structure her apostolate, how to safeguard the preaching in such a manner that um, the truth is protected, um, how to handle uh, situations that arise when, let's say, either you know, a cleric or a layman is unfaithful or you know, behaves poorly. There's a great deal of wisdom in, in the canons. And, of course, I mean, as a very brief aside there, we have to acknowledge at the same time that um, 
you know, the, the current canon law, the 1983 code, is not without its own problems insofar as it was composed precisely to give a legal structure to the mindset of Vatican II. You know, we may say what um, Paul VI was articulating. Um, so, uh, with that being said, we can point out that the Church herself, in her canon law, provides principles that can guide us in the society in these exceptional circumstances, which explicitly allude to the question of equity, you know, this virtue of care that we were talking about. Now, as I've to, already to mentioned... To carry the... Sorry, Father, to carry the analogy forward, canon law does provide for if the house is on fire, you can break in, basically. Exactly. We'll see okay. that it... Okay, yes. Um, although we're going to see... It doesn't speak about the exact fire that we're dealing with. Right. Which is, which right. is important to keep in mind. Now... Um, so, as I mentioned before, uh, at least in the 1983 code, in the explicit mention is made of the supreme law of the church being the salvation of souls. And consequently, we have to realize that everything bends to that, ultimately. If something in any way can be objectively shown to be hindering that, then its application, so long as that is the case, can be legitimately suspended. Now, in another canon, sorry, in the, in the 1917 code, uh, canon 20, and in 1983 code, canon 19, there's mention uh, of equity specifically. And it says that if on a particular matter there is not an express provision of either a universal or a particular law, nor any custom, then provided it is not a penal matter, the question is to be decided by taking into account laws enacted in similar matters, the general principles of law observed with canonical equity, the jurisprudence and practice of the Roman Curia, and the common and constant opinion of learned authors. So in other words, let's, the law is explicit. Okay, there's things that are going to arise that we don't foresee. Right. If that happens, well, what one should do to try to resolve it is to look at similar situations that are found in the law already, if they exist. One can also recur, as it says, to the general principles of the law, for example, the salvation of souls. That is a general principle of the law. Observe with canonical equity, in other words, trying to use that virtue of epicaea. Practice the Roman Curia, and in the constant opinion of learned authors, like moral theologians, canon lawyers, etc., etc., etc. And it's not just those who are alive now, over the generations of men who have commented on the law of the church. You know, so for example, in our own circumstances, how could the law, how could the canon law effectively foresee a time when a Catholic bishop would effectively forbid the practice of the faith, say, assisting at the traditional mass, simple as that. Unless one acknowledge principles of religious liberty or ecumenism, which truly do lead to heresy and apostasy, and the law would not foresee that. It just doesn't make any sense. So there's that aspect. Furthermore, we can say that the general principle uh, that guides the church is expressed by the axiom that sacraments are for men. And that's articulated. In other words, that means that uh, the church in means to make the sacraments as widely available as possible within the normal limits 
of that structural authority. So in Canon 682, in the old code, 1917 code, and then 213 in the new code, it is stated that the faithful have the right to demand and to receive from priests spiritual goods and particularly those aids necessary for salvation. What it means is that each, each member of the church can legitimately say, you owe me these sacraments. And indeed, the, the faith. You owe me the faith. There's a great, great, there's a uh, spiritual commentary for the Fevre's commentary that you know, by virtue of the baptism, every legitimate Catholic can go to his parish priest and give me the faith. Go to his bishop, give me the faith. And go to the cardinals, give me the faith. Go to the pope, give me the faith. Um, so I, I can to go it. to you and say, give give me this sacrament. I mean, within limits, obviously. Uh, but and in fact, in fact, moral theology states that a, a priest, when a faithful approaches him with a reasonable request for a sacrament, cannot deny it under pain of sin. Okay. You know, he has to give it. Um, and again, it's re- reasonable. So you know, if you come knocking on my door at 3 a.m. and say, hey, you know, I was just kind of passing by after coming back from the bar, and you know, if you don't mind, you know, I'd really appreciate it if you do my confession right now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know. That would not be a reasonable request for a sacrament. Right. But, um, but if it is, then a priest cannot or deny it, even if it inconveniences okay. him. And to, to comment on that as well, a little bit later in the code, uh, again, I'm giving both references, and obviously maybe in the YouTube video we can put that up. Um, so in the 1917 code, towards the end, 2261, and then the new code, 1335, says that for any just reason, a faithful may ask even from a censured priest, one who's punished, and even potentially stated, cannot give the sacrament, suspended. All sacraments, sacramentals, and according to the new code, even acts of jurisdiction. Mm. Okay. There is one limit to that, um, which is a latte, um, an excommunication that's been published. Um, but certainly for all the priests of the society, that doesn't exist. And it doesn't exist, let's say, um, from the view of Roman authorities, since Pope Benedict uh, lifted the excommunications in 2009. And of course, we never acknowledge the legitimacy of those communications in the first place. But what that's saying is that for a just reason, and one author comments that you know, a great spiritual need, in other words, I cannot be guaranteed that, let's say, I'll get the faith in my local parish, or that by going to the confession of this priest that I'll get sound moral advice, but I need to present my sins to our Lord. Um, even in the case where the society priest would be censured, wouldn't have a regular canonical um, ministry, by approaching them, the faithful would um, validly receive that sacrament for a just cause because they need that uh, um, firm and reliable assurance that they're going to get sound doctrinal and moral uh, teaching, or let's say, whatever, how you want to put that. So again, the, the idea there being is to ensure as much access as possible to these means of salvation. If the church wants to be liberal there, in the true sense of the term, um, and also, of course, respecting that normal hierarchy. And then, of course, we can speak about the question of supply jurisdiction. And this is getting back to the question of uh, looking at similar 
cases to the situation in which we find ourselves. Um, the church or canon law gives three, let's say, times when the church will directly supply jurisdiction to a priest, um, even when he does not actually have it then and there. Um, and uh, I'll just mention them. So you have what's called common error, which means a fact or law, which effectively means that you're dealing with a situation where somebody, um, for one reason or another, can reasonably believe somebody, a priest has jurisdiction, even though he does not, in fact. And there's various explanations of how that can come about, but the very fact that there is, you know, it's common, the error is common, it's, it's not something that's it's an exceptional thing. Um, and it's a common law, um, that by itself gives, um, or in that case, I should say, the church gives that priest jurisdiction so as to assure the validity of the sacrament they give requiring that jurisdiction. Then we have uh, the case, even in that question of error, if there's a positive and probable doubt that the priest has jurisdiction in one way or another, this church supplies and to make sure that, again, the sacrament is valid. And the clearest one there is a, a confession, let's say. And then um, we can speak, um, perhaps in a way the most clear one, is the danger of death. In other words, somebody's on the verge of entering into eternity. In that point, any priest can hear, let's say, a confession, absolve him, um, in order to give him the best chance that he go to heaven and, uh, and save his soul. And again, that's even true of a laicized priest, an excommunicate or anything like that, because he has the power of order. And the priest is like, okay, when you're in danger of death, um, all those considerations fall to the side in view of your impending meeting with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what we can see in the light of that is this, okay? None of those cases exactly, exactly fit our circumstances. But what they show is that the, the church in principle has already admitted that there can be circumstances where she will give jurisdiction uh, outside of the normal structures of the hierarchy of the church. Um, and we can say that given the character of the crisis, the faithful find themselves in what we can call a grave spiritual necessity akin to the danger of death, um, where for a variety of reasons there is a, a persistent danger that they cannot have access either to sound doctrine, the same teaching and preaching the catechism of the local church, or, um, let's say, sound instruction either for the preparation of marriage or for um, the question of confession um, or what have you. Uh, and as a result, they have to have recourse to um, priests who would, under normal circumstances, not have that jurisdiction from the church. And again, it's, it's applying that, it's, it's an analogy of law that we say there. Um, and again, it's, it's 
fundamentally rooted in the reality of the crisis that we're dealing with and the depth of the crisis in which we're dealing with. And I just want to—I want to point out one thing that that just struck me when I was hearing you say that, Father. It's—I think some critics might say, "Well, you're you're applying this, you're applying an analogy. You're saying that this because this is happening now, I can use this provision of canon law." But earlier, canon law said—and I'm—I'm I'm no canon lawyer. But earlier you said that canon law says um, if there's not a particular matter that we are discussing here, it was number 19, I think, Mm -hmm. then you look at the general principles in similar matters, in other things. So it is not wrong for us to look, for you, Father, to look at an analogous situation in canon law because canon law actually says to do that. Correct. And it says the intention of the law is to continue because... A lot of the particular canons or laws, you know, are founded on general principles. Um, And as a result, you know, by looking at uh, these similar circumstances or similar provisions in the law, we can go down to the principle underlying it and Mm -hmm. find in that principle one which would give an account of how to act in this particular uh, circumstance still according to the mind of canon law. Mm-hmm. Um, again, with this principle that uh, you know, the, the supreme law of the church is salvation souls, which necessarily means giving them the faith, since without it, they cannot please God. And in order to assure the greatest access possible for the sacraments um, in these let's say, exceptional circumstances foreseen by, even the ones foreseen by canon law, the church will supply the jurisdiction as needed. And given the fact that we're in an analogous, exceptional, and urgent situation, we can reasonably say that the church does continue to supply the jurisdiction um, uh, in those instances where um, we don't normally have it. Again, it's the... It's um, right now, of course, as I said at the beginning, Pope Francis has just given a blanket delegation to the fraternity or society priests to hear confession. So right now we don't have, let's say, this particular um, principle needed for our confessions. But if we just speak about the whole apostle that we exercise, you know, it's the same foundational principle. And now maybe just by way of conclusion, it might be good to make a few remarks about, I would say, the spirit of the society in this whole circumstance that we find ourselves. Because um, again, it's exceptional and it's not normal. It goes back to the question that you asked at the very beginning. You know, does this weigh on you? Um, and again, still, yes and no. Um, and to really be, to understand what God says, In the first place, I think it's critical to realize that what is at the heart of our work is a profound reverence for true authority. It's not a matter of just flipping, brushing off uh, these bishops. It's not at all our intention. And here it might be interesting to read a quotation from Archbishop Lefebvre. Um, which I think we can apply all proportion guarded to, say, the circumstances in which we find ourselves in any given diocese throughout the world. So this actually comes from a sermon that he gave on the Episcopal Consecrations. It's a beautiful sermon, well worth reading. But in it he says, 
that there is no question of us separating ourselves from Rome, nor putting ourselves into a foreign government, nor of establishing a sort of parallel church as the bishops of Palmer and Troy have done in Spain. They've even elected a pope, formed a college of cardinals. It is out of the question for us to do such things. Far from us be this miserable thought of separating ourselves from Rome. On the contrary, it is in order to manifest our attachment to Rome that we are performing this ceremony. It is in order to manifest our attachment to the eternal Rome, to the Pope, and to all those who have preceded these last popes, who unfortunately since the Second Vatican Council have thought it their duty to adhere to the grievous errors which are demolishing the Church and the Catholic priesthood. Like I said, all proportion guarded, we could say that with respect to each of the dioceses in which we find ourselves, it's far be it from us to separate ourselves from the local ordinary, from the successor of the apostle who governs this portion of the church. Indeed, what we do in, the, in those dioceses is in fact to show our loyalty to him as in a successor of the apostles. And in reality, in many respects, we can, I think, truthfully say that we are the most loyal uh, members of the church in many dioceses to the local ordinaries. In the sense that you know, mm-hmm. we're carrying on the work that he's been commissioned by God to do, in which, under normal circumstances, he would fully approve of, without any question. Um, and in a way, it's, you know, it's to go back to the analogy of a father, you know, it's if, a, um, if a father unfortunately is drunk, then the true son is going to be the one who's going to try to prevent him from drinking anymore. Right. And they go against his, what he says is his will. And so that means as well for us that we do have a readiness to obey in all matters that are not objectively contrary to the faith and morals. And we can go back to the Pope, our quotation of Archbishop Lefebvre, who said, look, if Pius XII, who was guided by the principles of the faith, were to say, okay, look, what you're doing, for one reason or another, is not um, is not contributing to the good of the church. I'm going to ask you to shut down. Fine, if that were the case, if we were being judged according to the tradition, the principles of the faith and of tradition, not a problem. And indeed, together with that, there is indeed a desire to reestablish normal links and bonds with the church and with the local ordinaries. Yes. And it's not a situation we, we delight in. It's not something we want to continue. It's just not normal. Okay? And by saying that we are not acknowledging that we are in the wrong at all, or that we have some kind of guilty conscience that we hope to appease, rather, it's as Archbishop Lefebvre was accustomed to say, it's not us who's produced this abnormal situation. It's not us who's basically gone crawling hands and feet, hands and knees, to... Um, the modern world is saying, let's adopt your principles. And as a result, let's turn our back on what the church has always taught about a whole range of truths. But we can say that if there were that acknowledgement, there were, let's say, some kind of regularization of the canonical situation of the, the society more securely, it would be good for the church, both for our own faithful, Certainly because it would lead to less confusion, and also, I would say, you know, ensure that they maintain the spirit of the church. 
which is not to be cut off in our isolated little trad chapels, in the sense, and which could easily lead to a Protestant mentality. We have our own little, uh, you know, network here, and it's completely cut off from the church as a whole. And not I've only seen, that, but we, um, sorry, I was just going to say, I've seen, I've seen comments, for instance, on the SSPX Facebook page of some people who have commented, uh, you know, when when there's a a story or something about you know uh, Bishop Filet, for instance, when he was visiting Rome, mm-hmm. you know, talking with Rome, having these regular conversations, and this was even after talk of the regularization. This was just you know visiting and, and talking with Rome. There were people who were outraged by that. Well, how mm-hmm. could he do that? Why would he go to Rome? Correct. Why would he go and talk with them? And to me, that's entirely the wrong mindset. You no, mm-hmm. you go when Rome calls. You go. You are part of the church. You don't mm-hmm. just cut yourself off and be this insular. That's a very set of a contest position in, in my mind. Mm-hmm. No, it's exactly right. And, you know, it's, you know, on a certain level, one can somewhat understand in the sense of, sure. you know, certain of the betrayals, et cetera. Um, sure. Um, but yeah, no, what you said there is completely right. And in fact, it's, you know, we mentioned Mr. Flay, but the same thing is said all the time about our sugar feathers. I've listened to all the, the spiritual conference that he gave, or at least the ones that were recorded um, mm. at a cone. And it's really rather remarkable how many times it comes up you know, where he's Archbishop Fev in speaking to the seminary. It's like, okay, yes, no, I have to deal with this group of traditionalists who are saying, why are you going to Rome? You should never go to Rome. Mm. You know, it's exact, exact same things that you know, Bishop Lay had to deal with. It was almost word for word the same critiques and stuff like that. And you know, Trisha said exactly what you said. It's like, no. Unless, yeah, I'm always going to be willing to go to Rome to to deal with the superiors of the church. And that's, I think, that was true even after the Episcopal consecrations, where he kind of said, okay, we'll just have to retreat for a time, simply because the break there was so clean cut, you might say, and so definitive, that is manifestly obvious that there's not going to be an immediate resumption of any kind of attempt to negotiate or whatever. But but that was just a, that was really more prudential thing. It wasn't because you know some, I know some who said, well, after that he said, okay, look, these people are so clearly modernistic that they, there's no way we can ever ever deal with them under any circumstances. The problem with that is he says the same things before 1988 when he actually went to negotiate with Rome, like in the right. spiritual conferences, for example, 86, 87. He's saying things like, we can't deal with these people; like they're completely modernistic. What, what are you going to do? And then he goes to negotiate. And with, when the, it becomes apparent that there might be some possibility of getting a reasonable organization. So, okay, well, anyways, that was kind of an aside. Sorry. Um, no, no, it's good. Um, and um, I would also say that that regularization would be good for the, obviously, for our own faithful. I was going to say, because it solidifies the authority that we do have from the church. Um, which in our current circumstances is very precarious. You know, it's, it's not an easy situation. It's not normal. It is not a normal situation. And of course, I would say it'd be good for all the faithful. Not, and it's, it's not, and this is a way, the more important part, because it may clear the rights of tradition and draw more souls to the faith and its integrity, as well as to the traditional sacraments. And that cannot but do good for the church. Now, maybe to, to end, I'd just once again like to quote Archbishop Lefebvre again from a conference that he gave in 1986, um, talking about the possibility of bishops, again, two years before the actual consecrations. 
And it really sums up the spirit of the society. You know, we're doing what we have to do because of this emergency, but we want the emergency to end. And so he says, these bishops would be my auxiliaries, but have no jurisdiction. They would be there to give confirmation and ordination. This has nothing to do with setting up a parallel church. This aim is simply to continue the society so that it does not die of death because there is no one to ordain its priests. And the day the truth of the church of all time comes back to Rome, these bishops will put their episcopal dignity in the hands of the Pope and say to him, Here we are. What will you do with us? If you want to make use of us, you can do so. But what remains is the society, that is the work of God, ruled by God. In all proportion guarded, we can say the same thing. When, when we say that faithful times comes back to diocese, you know, in its integrity, the society, you know, the society as a whole and the priests and individuals will certainly be and that principle willing to come to the mission say, here we are, we are your servants. We want to help you precisely to spread, to nourish, and to protect the faith of all times. That's what we wish to do. Let's do it. So, would, would that this day comes very soon? By the way, yes, for sure. Yeah. That was... Um, that was excellent. That was a great way of, of understanding this. Um, you know, we've we've heard these these arguments, these objections, so many times. Of you know, it's not normal. It's not regular. No, it's not. No. <laughs> I don't no, think there's anyone who can argue that this is normal. Um, mm-hmm. But at least it's it's good to understand, you know, canonically and and philosophically. I guess these there there's some solid ground. Uh, that the SSPX can stand on until mm-hmm. until that time comes. Correct. Yeah, yeah. I would just say it's uh, at the level of the positive canon law and the level of the first principles of the law. And what we're doing is not uh, opposed to the mind of the, our Lord Jesus Christ, under uh, the legislator, who is the legislator for his church. Um, and again, it's, it's because of the, the gravity of the situation which we, we see around us, which you know, we want. Yeah, it weighs only because of the gravity of the situation, because souls are being lost as a result of, of the fact that the faith is being obscured by these modern principles and those that Pope Paul VI discussed and Cardinal Lasker mentioned. And it's choking souls, and we want that to end. Father, thank you so much for the time. It was great to uh, great to chat with you again, and um, I believe this is the last time in this series, at least, we'll be talking with you. So, thank you for so. for coming on. I think it's been what five or six episodes you've helped us with. So, thank you for all the time you spent to put these together and to uh, talk with us about all these. It's my pleasure, and thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you for listening to and watching episode forty-four of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. Next week, Don Tranquilo will join us for a question that many of our listeners asked us to discuss. Namely, what are we to think of the new canonizations? Are they infallible? Are any canonizations infallible? Does it mean that the church is no longer infallible if we look at the canonizations 
of recent popes who helped spread the errors of Vatican II and the new Mass? That's next week. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and to the SSPX News English YouTube channel so that you won't miss next week's episode or any of our future ones. If you click the little bell, it'll give you a notification as well. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of $5 or $10 or $20 on SSPXpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this crisis in the church project. Until next week, thank you for listening and God bless you.